0: Something, you know, I'm repetitive sometimes, and you guys have heard me before, so I may have said something like this before, but here, here's what I want to say I want to say that you and I, all of us in this room, are living in a really weird period of history. Okay? Not for many of the reasons that you might think, but a weird period of history as it relates to secularity and independence. Okay? First, secularity. I was born in 1961. See, I'm old. 1961. And if you want to do some statistics on it, you can find out that in 1961, almost everybody went to church. Seriously, they did. I mean, not just in the South, either, where I grew up. It was everywhere. People went to church. They were either Catholics or Protestants. If they were Protestants, they fought about being Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian. They had their squabbles, but everybody was pretty much church-going. You know as well as I do, that's not true anymore, right? In the place where we live, you are the minority. Actually, you're a small minority compared to the larger world that you live in. Here's the thing, since we live in a world that is overwhelmingly secular, it's easy for us to think that that's the norm of history, but it's not. Actually, the norm of history is not atheism or agnosticism or secularity. The norm of history is overwhelmingly religious. I don't mean overwhelmingly Christian, but I do mean overwhelmingly religious. So, an ancient culture, if they were able to peer into our world, would have thought it very, very strange, because ancients were all about religion. All kinds of religion, but all about it. Second thing that's odd about the world we live in is radical independence. That, of course, is... By and large, the inheritance of the United States and, you know, revolutions like in France and all these different places where democracy flourished a few centuries ago and things changed and independence becomes just part of the tapestry of life. But you see, that's weird too. Because in the history of the world, there was no such thing as the kind of way we think about independence. I'm telling you there wasn't. People just didn't think that way. They thought communally, and they thought religiously. And often, religion and community, no, almost always, religion and community were inseparably linked. You were not religious on your own. You didn't have a God of your own choosing. You didn't have a mysterious, mystical relationship with a God all by yourself that nobody else had. You worship in community. As a matter of fact, it's really still a lot like that <laughs> around the world in all kinds of tribes throughout the world. People worship in community. I say all that to say this, community as it relates to religion is something that we think is kind of an add-on nowadays. We think, oh, that's special, you know? I'll be religious, I'll love God, I'll follow God, and then it's kind of like icing on the cake or dessert, I'll be a part of a religious community too. That's the oddest thing in the world, in the history of the world, to be a part of a religious community too. If you were religious, you were part of a community. So, what I'm about to do um, is I'm about to gallop through the entire Old Testament. Are okay, you ready? We're going to do it. It'll be fine. Hang with me. Don't fall asleep. It'll really, I, it'll just insult me. I may even cry if you fall asleep. I, I really think this is So, we're going to gallop through the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. I know last week, Josiah talked a little bit about Genesis in the beginning, Adam and Eve. When I'm talking about community, that's the first community. At the very beginning, God creates community. He creates community between himself and humanity. And notice this. When he creates Adam, he also creates Eve. Why? Because Adam needed Eve. Eve needed Adam. This is actually more than a throwaway comment, but I'll make it a throwaway comment. You know the notion that all I need is God? It's not true. You are created that way from the very beginning god created you for relationship with him and relationship with others and the most profound relationship with others you have is when you're connected with them in religious community so it all starts out with community now let's gallop big gallop from that community the earliest community to the community that was a family, which is the family of Noah. You remember, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 9, the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. It's chaos, people are killing each other, it's a disaster. And God says, alright, I'm done. This world that I made perfect, it's a mess. I'm just going to wipe it clean and start all over. And then he decides to look for a man who is faithful to following him. And he's going to take that man's community, which is his family, and he's going to redeem them. And the story is, of course, Noah and his family are on a boat. What you also learn, actually in 1 Peter, not the Old Testament, is that Noah apparently seemed to be a guy who was calling people to repentance and saying, you know, there's a storm coming and all that kind of thing. God decided to use Noah in small community To not just save him, but to redeem the whole world. In other words, to start over and to get things going afresh. So we start with Adam and Eve. We jump to Noah. Where are we going to go next? Anybody guess? Abraham. Did somebody say Abraham? Oh, okay. (laughs) We could go a lot of places, but let's jump to Abraham. Okay? we got the beginning of new community, original community. We've got Noah and a family community. That followed him. Then we have Abraham. Where's Abraham from? Abraham's from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Which apparently is the birthplace of civilization down where modern day Iraq is. Uh, Babylon would have been a huge city down there. He was part of Ur of the Chaldees. He got a call from God. God said, Abraham, I want you to leave. Everything you know that's familiar with you. And I want you to go to another place. But I'm not telling you where you're going. I want you to take your community and through your community I'm going to bless the whole world. Okay. It would be like Abraham was living in New York City. Okay. So a lot of people there. You want to feel small? Go to Times Square. Just walk around by yourself and you would be swallowed up. You will feel so insignificant. That's Abraham in Ur of the Calvary. God points to him and says, Abraham, I want you. I'm choosing you and your community, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So Abraham, in effect, starts a new community commanded by God. He leaves Ur of the Chaldees, makes this huge trip over a thing called the Fertile Crescent, all the way down to the south, ends in Palestine, and there he begins to build the new community that God instructed him to build. You know, basically, God was saying, it's not like I don't exist anywhere else, Abraham. It's not like God didn't exist in Ur of the Chaldees, or anywhere else in the world. He's just saying, Abraham, I want you as a special community to demonstrate my grace to the world. Abraham, the way I communicate grace is I take communities and I demonstrate my grace through them. And so he said, follow me. So, of course, we know the end of that long story when Abraham finally follows God and uh, submits to this long journey, we note much later in the New Testament that the whole thing was a picture of Jesus. Why? Because Abraham and Sarah are infertile. They can't have children, and they don't have children until he's 100 and she's 90. Bizarre turn of events. Not possible. Miracle. Practically a virgin birth. Finally, they have Isaac. When Isaac is born, God calls Abraham mysteriously again and says... Where's the promise? I'm kind of filling in the gaps. It's not exactly like this. Where's the promise, Abraham? (laughs) Well, God, it's over there. It's it's my son. The promise to bless the whole world. It's got to go through him. Go get him, Abraham. Take him to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Abraham's head must have been spinning so fast he couldn't see. But his response to God was, okay, if you will. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, he had such deep faith in God that he decided that even if God wanted his son to be sacrificed on an altar, God would raise him from the dead because he promised that he was going to bless the whole world through his son. Of course, you know the story, Abraham goes to the top of Mount Moriah. Oh, by the way, on the top, on the way up to Mount Moriah, Isaac looks at Abraham and he says, Father, we've got the wood and we've got the fire. Carrying the fire, carrying the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham turns to him and says, God will provide. He doesn't tell them. He just says, God will provide. You know what Abraham says to his servants before he goes up to the top? He says, you stay here with the donkeys and I and the boy will go to the top to worship God and we will return. Abraham's faith is so deep and so strong in the promise of God that the writer of the book of Hebrews says he knew God was going to raise him from the dead even if God allowed him to sacrifice. Now, of course, We later, as Christians, look back at that and say, God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. God intended for Abraham to get to the point of full surrender so he could say, God, it's all up to you. You're the one that's going to bless the whole world through this son of mine. And I'm willing to give him up if you want me to. And then we see the picture of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God, the son of God, the one through whom the whole world is blessed. Where did it start? With Abraham's community of faith. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's a rascal, by the way. He's always getting in trouble. He's deceptive. He's just swindling his way through life. And God basically says, it doesn't matter. I know who you are, Jacob. I know you're a scoundrel. I know your name is Heel Grasper, but I'm going to take you and I'm going to use you to bless the world because you're part of the community of Abraham. So Jacob does what he's supposed to do. Long story before it's all over, Jacob's sons are sold into slavery in effect, right? Or at least they think. They go to Egypt to get some food because things have dried up in Palestine and when they go to Egypt to get some food they find out that their brother is the vice-regent of the whole area, Joseph. When they find that out, they're overwhelmed because they sold their brother into slavery and now this slave is the vice-regent of an entire nation. As a matter of fact, the most powerful nation in the world. Before it's all over, Abraham's community is saved ...through the sinful activity of Joseph's brothers. Isn't that amazing? In other words, Joseph's brothers did everything wrong. They were full of hatred and rage against Joseph. They despised him. So they threw him into a pit, planning to kill him, eventually pulled him out and sold him into slavery... And God took what was absolutely evil, every motivation of their heart, and turned it into good. He saved the entire family because, he said, I'm going to bless the world through a new community. I've chosen Abraham. After that's all over, Joseph and the brothers and the descendants of those brothers stay in Egypt for a long time. They stay there long enough until they have become a great nation of their own, in a way, even though they're still slaves in Egypt. And there comes a time where there's this huge gap between Joseph and the people who are in Egypt, such that nobody seems to know Joseph. A king arose, it says, that didn't know Joseph, didn't know the connection. These people were living in a land called Goshen, and they were just serving the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh decides that they're a threat to him. And so he's going to weed them out. Remember that story from Sunday school? The way he weeds them out is he says, I want the Hebrew women who are midwives, I want you to take every young boy that comes out of the womb, and I want you to kill him. That's a way to shrink the population in a hurry. Hebrew midwives, there to deliver the child, they check the gender, and they're instructed to kill the sons. Not every son was killed, obviously, because the Hebrew people flourished. But on one particular occasion, God chose, again, to take everything that was evil and turn it on his head. Jacobed, that was the name of Moses' mother. Jacobed delivered a young boy that we now know as Moses. And she was afraid, but she hid the child, and she told Miriam, um, her daughter, Moses's older sister, to put m- Moses in a basket, tar pitch all around it, and let him float in the Nile River. And uh, Miriam was supposed to watch him, you know, babysitting, um, different kind of babysitting. I guess you were watching for crocodiles or something, you know. Um, what a job she watches and. Of course, eventually, the princess of the Pharaoh comes to bathe in the water and sees the child and has one of her servants bring it to her, and she loves the child. And she says, I'll take him to my home. But first, what I want to do is I need a nursemaid. He's a tiny child. Marian pops up and says, I know somebody. Well, somebody, his real mother. Miriam takes Moses, her baby brother, back to his mother. She raises him to a certain age, we're not quite sure, and then turns him over to the princes of Pharaoh. The young man Moses is raised as a Hebrew when he's a child, and he's taught as an Egyptian, as an adult. And God brings those two things together in this remarkably subversive, unusual way and decides that Moses is going to take his people out of captivity. Moses leads his people out of captivity. You know the story. Across the Red Sea, the waters parted into the land. He delivers them to the promised land. But along the way, what happens? One of the major things that happens along the way is God delivers his wall to the people. Why? To make it hard on them? No, to spare them. He delivers his law to the people because he knows this group of vagabond people wandering across the desert are going to destroy themselves if they don't have help. And he says, i got a plan for you. I have a covenant with you. I love you so much. I'm going to show you how to live. And Moses brings those tablets down and they follow. To a certain extent. And sometimes they don't. Eventually they make it to the promised land when they land in the promised land, they begin to inherit all the things that God told them they would inherit. They live in the promised land. And judges are raised up. It's it's basically like prophets and judges that help the people follow the law and understand what it is to to live with God. And they go through this cycle of how they just leave God behind. when they leave God behind, they're oppressed by their enemies. And then they cry out to God and say, what's going on? And God says basically through a prophet, duh, you walked away. I promised you protection. I promised you life. I promised you health. If you just walked with me, you walked away, return to me through repentance. They bawl and return in repentance because one of the judges calls them out. And then things are good for a while, depending on the judge, 30, 40 years or more. And the cycle starts all over again. But you know what it is? It's a community. It's a group of people not following God in solidarity, but following God together. And there's a judge that constantly calls them back. Eventually, the land of the judges, so it speak turns into the land of the kings. You move from the judges through Samuel and those figures, and then eventually Samuel realizes that the people want a king, and Saul is their king, and then David is their king, and then Solomon's their king. Those three kings in a row, they're sort of the mountaintops of kingdom. But the real mountaintop and the whole thing is the kingdom of David. Because in the kingdom of David, there's more peace than ever before. There's wider access to all the things that God has said you can have access to if you follow me. There's justice. The laws are understood. The prophets are there. The priests are there. A temple is there. Not just a tabernacle. And it's right at the center of the community. So everything. Imagine this. Imagine this. In our world, we live in a galaxy. In our world, we and other planets circle around the sun. We draw our source of life from that burning ball out there. It is our life source. In the nation of Israel, under King David, when things were the way they were supposed to be, the center of life was the temple. The center of life was communal worship. Everybody circled around the temple and drew their life from it. Of course, community breaks down eventually, right? It broke down in Solomon and then Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And he had this flurry of kings, wicked kings, and Israel split right into north and south, Judah and Israel, they were named. They fought against each other. They fought with each other on occasion, they had outside forces that were imposing their will upon them and before it was all over, the entire nation of Israel and Judah eventually were taken into captivity. They're in exile. They're away from their original community. You know what God said to do when they were in exile? He said basically this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to live I want you to prosper. I want you to build houses. I want you to plant crops. Especially grapes and live under your own fig tree. I want you to assimilate into that Babylonian society and live there. I really do want you to live there. And at the same time, while you're living there, remember you don't belong there. I want you to remember who I am. I want you to follow me. I want you to worship me. I want you to prosper. I want you to even be influential in the world that you're living in. Remember the names Daniel? Shadrach? Meshach? and Abednego At the upper echelons of advisement to what we would call the president? Jewish boys? I want you to live in that world, but I want you to remember that it's really not your (laughs) world. And while you're living there, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell your children and tell yourself that a day is coming when everything's going to be restored, when it's going to be brought back to normal, when the exile is going to be over. So, the faithful people who live in community told that story to their families. Of course, historically, you know that eventually, um, Cyrus, a king that had nothing to do with the Jewish faith, heard from God. This is another example of how God speaks in unusual ways, not through the common means. And spoke to Cyrus and said, it's time for these guys to go back, send them back to their land, let them reestablish themselves, and he sends them back by a, a, a fiat from the king, and they Reestablished their land, and then there's this 400-year period. 400 years from the time they're reestablished in the land until Messiah comes, until Jesus is a part of history. And for 400 years, reestablished in the land, they continued to look for the Savior. When Jesus came, you know the story. Some people got it and some people didn't. The people who got it, that's your heritage. The people who told the story, I mean, apart from the ones you know of in the Bible, they're your parents. They're your fathers and your mothers in the faith. The only reason you and I are here today Is because God did not give up on community. He kept shaping. Community is incredibly important to those people who follow God. Why? Well, first, because we live in a strange land. Remember I said you're in an odd Section of history. You live in a strange place. You're a horrible minority. (coughs) Most people don't think like you think, believe what you believe. Most people just don't. And God says, You're basically a pilgrim, an alien in this place, until I bring everything back to rights. Until I fix it all, I want you to do just like those people in exile did. I want you to live. I want you to be influential. I want you to plant crops. I want you to build houses. I want you to have families. I want you to be the light of the world. That's what I want you to do. That's what I created community for. So there's a community within a huge society. Why is community important? Well, because... You're strangers in a land, it's not your own. And you better have brothers and sisters if you're going to wander this land. It gets lonely otherwise. Second thing I think is important to remember that community is there for, is that community is the way God tells his story of grace. Right? Look at the whole history of the Bible. He always told his story of grace through community. He didn't just tell his story of grace through a bob. A person an individual he told his story of grace through a community there were you know luminaries among the community there were Moses there was Elijah there was Ezekiel there were all these people but the story is told through community not through individuals it's told through community so when God says to Abraham all the way back there I'm gonna bless the whole world through your family he didn't say Abraham I'm gonna bless the whole world through everything that is you Abraham couldn't have done it on his own. God knew that. God said, I'm going to bless the whole world through a group of people that are going to come from you. They're going to reproduce. They're going to be a community of faith. And I'm going to bless the whole world through them. The only one singular person that God blessed the whole world through is Jesus Christ. But the body of Christ is the representative of Jesus Christ. When Jesus left this earth, he said, you, in effect, are me. You're my witness to the world. You, community of faith, are my image in the world. So, community is incredibly important. You live in a strange land. The story of grace is told through community. You don't, you don't do it alone. You share that story. Um Maybe a little long, but I don't speak that much. Um, I, I would challenge you guys to share other people's stories. Don't be on your own. Share other I, I grew up in a, a really weird religious community that was strangely conservative and odd in a lot of ways. But among the tremendous benefits I remember, as I think back, was people's stories. People's stories of grace. I wouldn't have gotten them if I hadn't been in community. That's the importance of community. You need their stories of grace uh, to encourage you. Why is community important? Because God shapes us in community. There's a community at 4723 Donington Drive in Bloomington that shapes me. Right now it's just two of us, my wife and me. Before that, there were two others, Trish and David. And in that community, it was like this. Iron sharpening iron. We were abrasive with each other. We loved each other. We sharpened each other. We reflected the image of God to the world through each other. That's what you have to do in community. You gotta let other people shape you. You won't find a perfect community. If you find one, run as hard as you can because you'll destroy it if you enter it, okay? There is no perfect community. Imperfect community shapes perfect people. I mean by that, not that you're perfect, but you're perfected through imperfection in community. Does that make sense? The imperfection actually perfects you. So make sure you're connected to the community. I mean, let me just throw out an absolutely bald appeal to be a part of C groups. Find them. They're there, they're community. They're some of the most profound things that have ever happened at ECC. If you're not a part of one, be a part of one. And when you walk into that community or some other community and you feel like it makes you irritated or (coughs) nauseous, take a pill and stay. (laughs) Because you need to. That's where you're shaped. You're shaped in community. (coughs) Community shapes us. It's really the pressure cooker of life, right? That's how we grow Community shapes us because it holds us accountable. Community strengthens us because we can't do it alone. Community is the way that God reaches the world. Or let's put it another way. It's not all about you. It's about community. God uses community to shape the world. You couldn't possibly influence the world on your own. God chose to use community to do it. And when you feel like you're linked, like arms with other people in community, you begin to find a deep appreciation for what they can do that you cannot do. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians and in Romans chapter 12, both chapter 12, 1 Corinthians and Romans, says that the body of Christ is essential. Some people are a hand, and some people are an arm, some people are a foot, some people are this, some people are that, some people are the right thumb, to extend this metaphor a little further, some are the pinky. Every one of you is something, right? And none of you is unimportant, but none of you is the whole. And none of you can do the work that God has called you to do unless you're in community. So stay in community. Last uh, plug. There's a mission trip coming up. Is the date closed? Um, pretty much. Pretty much. So you might not be going on this mission trip. The next one, don't miss it. I'm telling you, don't miss it. If there's any way for you to do it, get involved. Because community is shaped when you work together. And they're about ready to do that. And when you go somewhere else and you work in community with other people that you know and with people you don't know, especially in other parts of the world, your mind is expanded concerning what God's doing in the world. How many communities there are out there that are shaping other communities so that they can proliferate and expand and grow and God's kingdom can come and God's will can be done on earth just like it is in heaven. After all, that's what Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. I guess we ought to too, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, shaping us in community. You've done it in many ways. Um, We confess, Lord, that we want to run away from it and hide. Because, quite frankly, people are just irritating. They're annoying. They're hurtful. They're sinful. They're just like us. And in community, we shape one another. When we keep our eyes, centered and fixed on the goal which is jesus you use everybody in our life in community to grow us and then together we become the light of the world thank you lord for community I pray you'll help us to embrace it more fully understand it more deeply and benefit it benefit from it all the days of our life in Christ's name we pray amen